Hello, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Rational Religion Show, where we discuss religion, science, and society. My name is Omar Nasser. And I am Tahir Nasser. And uh, we are going to be discussing um, what we can call a cultural crisis at the moment that is confronting many people in the West um, through the Black Lives Matter movement and the raising of consciousness about historical slavery and ongoing uh, discrimination and systemic racism. Um, we're going to be looking particularly into the... Um, religious and non-religious ideologies that feed into it uh, and i am going to start with uh an entertaining but quite controversial uh, tweet from sean king he says yes i think the statues of the white european they claim is jesus should also come down they are a form of white supremacy always have been in the bible when the family of jesus wanted to hide and blend in guess where they went egypt not denmark tear them down <coughs> And then he says, uh, yes, all murals and stained glass windows of white Jesus and his European mother and their white friends should also, their white friends, so interesting way of describing the disciples, should also come down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they are a gross form of white supremacy, created as tools of oppression, racist propaganda, they should all come down. Now, the first thing that strikes me is um, the repetition here. This second tweet seems somewhat redundant, to be honest. Um, but he's saying uh, that... I eight, disagree with that. Really? He adds in murals and stained glass windows, which is a pretty massive attack mm. on um, Christian architecture. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, he's saying that they're a form of white supremacy. He's saying that Jesus is basically not a white European. Uh, and he's saying that all of this religious iconography should come down. Um, so what do you think about that? Do you agree with that? No, I mean, I think that's an act of vandalism, frankly. Um, I think if anybody attacks a church trying to tear down a stained glass window, I would be at the forefront defending it as a Muslim because I'm a Muslim, mm. because Islam teaches uh, Muslims to uh, defend the, um, to actually defend places of worship. So that's how, that's how I think about it. Um, and I think an attack on stained glass windows and these kinds of things, yes, they may have a religious and a cultural uh, significance that we do not necessarily uh, buy into now, but they yeah. are one works of art and two, they are works of religious significance for Christian believers. Mm. So, you know, if anybody came into my mosque to try and destroy the attributes of God on the wall, okay. The lettering. I feel the lettering, for example, mm. um, the, the, the Arabic lettering of the attributes. I mean, I'd be... Um, if so, I'd be as affronted as if somebody tried to destroy a church stained glass window in many respects, because I recognize that Christians have as much attachment to that as I would have to the attributes of God, because they believe mm. that that was get God incarnate. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, it's just, that's just a vandalistic attitude. However, there is a truth underpinning what Sean King says, which is that the white European Jesus um, has been used and has played a part in the development of systemic racism. But He's missing a broader point, which we can discuss. I mean, what, what do you think about it? Um, I think it's uh, I think it's quite insensitive. I think it's uh, but he's he's probably really just trying to make this point. I think it's it's a uh, it's probably a hyperbolic way of making this point of the fact that Jesus is not was not a white European, and I think it's getting at a sense of um, you know a lot of let's say let's let's give a little bit of a caricature but um you know christians in some christians in some parts of america who may not uh, be extremely um 
uh, tolerant of, say, the Middle East or Middle Eastern peoples, and uh, maybe somewhat aggressive to them or have, you know, rather bellicose views towards them, while not realizing that actually Jesus was himself a, a Middle Eastern. You could call him an Arab or someone from that from that um, from that area quite loosely. And this idea that he's a he's a white European, I think he's saying is, you know. He wasn't that. He's not someone who's come from the same countries as, as you. Um, he is someone who comes from some of the countries which you, you class as your enemies. Um, so why don't you have a little bit of uh, historical knowledge about things and therefore broaden your view? So I think it's, for me at least, it's kind of getting to that annoyance of the, the realization of who Jesus was. But there's a broader point here, which is... Can I just jump in there? I mean, yeah. if he had said all of that instead of writing what he did, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but that's not actually what he wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he wrote basically that, you know, Christian sites should be vandalized. Yeah, no, and I don't agree with that, but I'm saying uh, I think I, I feel like that's the sentiment that's kind of simmering under that. Um, I think that's a very generous reading of something that's pretty explicitly stated. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, but what do you do? You agree with this idea that it's a form of, of of white supremacy or a manifestation of white supremacy? You know, how how do you? What's your read on that? I think it's inevitable you're going to get, look, when you divide God into different parts, the consequence of dividing God into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is that to um, even to, to differentiate between the three, you have to depict them in some form, okay? Um, you don't have to, but if you end up also depicting them, then it is done to kind of differentiate them. So father, the Father is usually seen as a kind of old man with a white beard figure, the Holy Spirit is a dove, and then the Son is Jesus. Well, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean just, to, just to pick up on that, actually, I think there's, a, there's a, almost a philosophical point here, which is that, you know, the idea of God is usually that he's a transcendent, infinite being without form, immaterial. But as soon as you start splitting up God and say God can be three persons, then you have to say there's some kind of distinction between one yes. thing and the other, because for there to be two persons or three persons, there need to be different characteristics. So yeah. then you start having some kind of division philosophically in the idea of God, which means God is one thing and he is not another thing. So he has some form and that there can be different forms of God. Um, yeah. And then you start to slide very quickly into ideas of, um, well, that, then God must be limited in some way. God must not be an unlimited being. He must be limited in certain ways, in certain respects. As so, we said in our recent video, you know, you know, God must be, God is this color, but not that color. He looks like this. He doesn't look like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, especially in the Christian um, view, and actually, all, most 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 uh, religions which believe in some kind of multiplicity of God's persons, um, they are they are usually uh, it, it, the root of it. Usually, is that that God manifests Himself into human form in some way. Um, so, in the Christian theology, uh, at least Pauline Christian theology, God manifested Himself in 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 Jesus and was a God incarnate as the Son. So He has taken on a form. Um, and as soon as you have God taking on a form, then you, as you said, you can be one color and not the other color. And that seems to be the the way that actually um, current cultural um, ideologies or you know undertones in society can then find themselves and manifest themselves into religious uh, iconography and religious depictions. Um, how I mean, do you agree with that? And if so, how do you think that kind of happened in this in this case? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think, you know, there was obviously a political will to um, <clears throat> demonize people of darker skin. It's the reason why we've had a lot of demonization of Muslims in the last 20 years is because there's a political will to invade Muslim countries. Mm. So, you know, a lot of that kind of hype and kind of 
<clears throat> attack of a particular group or a particular ethnicity or a particular background occurs, especially uh, across the against the broader kind of picture of colonialism or invasion of, of a native of a people. Um, and part of that, and part of the buttressing of that, is the use of religion for that obviously. And especially in the Middle Ages, especially when colonialism started to occur, especially towards the beginning of the 17th century, um, you know, people were religious. They were religious like they are not today. And so it's only natural that um, God and the concept of God would be used to justify those kinds of political actions. Okay. Um, so you're saying that we had an era of colonization and God, who was you know, the, the highest, highest being in society, the highest thing to which you look, um, and God's religion was used to, let's say, justify certain philosophies or certain um, certain actions of states. Um, and do you, and and in what way do you feel that white supremacy kind of came into that in Christianity? Um, well, for example, you know you have the concept of the white Jesus, mm. um, and you see this in in many many uh, depictions of Jesus. That's one way. Um, there are other ways, however, in terms of the demonization of black people mm -hmm. as um, uh, spiritually inferior, as morally inferior. So it happens both ways. And also there's an effect of the white Jesus concept on black people themselves. I mean, if you enslave large populations of West Africans, you know, take them and ship them over to uh, America, and then you stick, you forcibly convert them from their previous religions, which are either often paganized religions or Islam. Mm. Okay. Um, and then you stick them in churches, you rename them. Yeah. Okay. So they're no longer their original African names. They're now Butler or um, Bill or whatever. Yeah. And now you put a picture of a white Jesus on the wall who looks like their slave master. Yeah. What are you telling them? Yeah, you're telling them that they are inferior. That, that that God, when He manifested Himself, even He chose to look like your slave masters. Even He didn't want to look like you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's how far removed you are in the picture of divine authority and divine love. So then you basically entrench racist ideologies through uh, a religious philosophy. Um, and I, I think I think that's that's what happened. And there's as we talk about in our recent video um, on Malcolm X and uh, and some issues around there. You know, that's also seems to have happened in Hindu philosophy as well. When you have you know a great multiplicity of gods, and some are definitely dark skinned, but many and most the the, the majority seem to be very fair skinned. And you have great epics about a you know dark skinned god overcoming a a, a a light sorry a light skinned god overcoming dark skinned other entities. In India, there's a huge problem with this kind of uh, racism about you know people trying to have fair skin rather than dark skin. And actually, throughout the world, you have uh, people trying to make their skin fairer and all kinds of bleaching products. Um, so I think actually the key thing is, is that at least from my, my reading, I don't know if you'd agree with this, um, it's not that, you know, the idea of um, Trinity or even polytheism in itself is inherently leads to racism just just like that as, as, a, as, a, as a direct causal link. Um, it's more that when you have different forms of God coming and you have religious iconography and you have the ability to depict, what you can do, what you open the door to is entrenching um, damaging philosophies into uh, your religion. Um, is that is that is that kind of is that is yeah, that your, your feeling? I mean, well? there's a really great chapter. There's a really great verse of the Quran on this in chapter twenty nine, verse twenty six, hmm. uh, and it says this. It says, "And he said, Verily, you have taken for yourselves idols beside Allah, the one God, out of love for each other in the present life. 
In other words, the development of idolatry occurs as a phenomenon to whereby God is used to solidify um, uh, material and worldly relationships. And so in a way, um, this is why idolatry, people often wonder, well, what, you know, why does God get such so irate in Judaism and Islam? Christianity has you know, fallen away from its Judaic origins. But mm. so in Judaism and Islam, which have at least maintained the concept of the, the fundamental concept of oneness of God, you know, why does God get so irate about being one? Mm. I mean, why is he so jealous about this? You know, why? Yeah. And the answer is very simple. And the Quran gives it many times. This is one example of a verse which explains it, which is that when you take uh, other gods beside God, mm. or you take the concept of God and split it up, Hmm. The natural consequence of that is you get um, divinity resting or, a, 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 you know, the concept of the authority of divinity resting in in various different beings, hmm. okay? And the consequence of that is, is that man seeks to actually use his, uh, use God and the concept of God to justify his own evil. And so the concept of God loses all power as a reformatory concept because instead of God regulating human behavior, God is now used to justify human behavior. Right. Okay? Instead of, because with, with the concept of the one God, for example, you know, you can, yeah, you can never really argue that, you know, God hates this other people. Well, then why did he create them? Yeah. Okay, if there's one God, then it means all humanity is from that one God, in which case we all have basic equality before God. Yeah. But when you begin to divide God up and then you pit your God against that God, Okay, then the natural consequence of that will be that um, you use then God to justify your own evil. And so God loses, God, the concept of God becomes impotent yeah. as a spiritual concept of reformation. Um, and that's why God has such a big deal with people, other than the fact that it's a lie and that you're just worshipping stones and that you're just worshipping um, a human being who lived and has no power to actually do you any good. Yeah. One of the reasons, I believe, is actually because um, it nullifies the very um, purpose and the benefit of God as well um, for human beings. That's all very interesting about how um, particular ideologies like racist ideologies can actually feed into religions, uh, especially if they have iconography and depictions of God, because then you can just entrench um, racist uh, racism into your, your religion, like we saw with the caste system very much in India, which has kind of a, a class and a racist element, um, or classist slash racist um, uh, elements which go into making the different castes and we've seen it in how white supremacists in recent history have used it um with with white jesus and and really uh and it really was uh, demeaning to black people in on a, on a religious and spiritual sense but i think it also comes into uh scientific philosophies and i'm in particular here thinking about charles darwin the uh, eminent victorian naturalist who uh is credited with co-founding the theory of evolution by natural selection uh <laughs> Do you know Darwin? Have we ever covered him before on this channel? Um, he he wrote some pretty, really genuinely quite racist things. And uh, I haven't included anything from The Descent of Man here. These are just from a, a few of his letters. And uh, he says, uh, let's, let's get it. Are all there up. more racist things in Descent of Man? Oh, yeah, 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 lots. Um, and that was published material as well. But this is particularly explicit. He says, uh, <laughs> very odd, those accounts in India of the little hairy men. It is very, I don't know what that's in reference to. It is very true what you say about the higher races of men when high enough, replacing and clearing off the lower races. In 500 years, how the Anglo-Saxon race will have spread and exterminated whole nations. And in consequence, how much the human race viewed as a unit will have risen in rank. 
So he's clearly saying that there are higher and lower races of man. And that uh, in 500 years, he anticipated that the Anglo-Saxons will have extrapolated their progress from the 19th century and, and spread and exterminated whole nations and how whole of humanity, whole of humanity will have risen in rank. So that's like super racist and very eugenicist and very um, uh, colonialist. Yeah, and genocidal. And he didn't seem to have any kind of issue with it. He's not saying, well, it'd be terrible and we shouldn't do that. He was kind of looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then we have lastly I could show fight on natural selection having done and doing more for the progress of civilization than you seemed incli seem inclined to admit remember what risks the nations of Europe ran not so many centuries ago of being overwhelmed by the Turks and how ridiculous such an idea is now now is the more civilized so-called Caucasian races have beaten the Turkish hollow in the struggle for existence Looking to the world at no very distant date, what an endless number of the lower races will have been eliminated by the higher civilized races throughout the world, he said breathlessly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's got he's got this image as this like genteel kind of um, you know tortured naturalist, but uh, and and to an extent he was, but <laughs> tortured naturalist. Yeah, he always looks like he's soul dead in all of his pictures. Um, no comment as to why. But, uh, I mean, this is really, really quite awful. Looking at the world at no very distant date, what an endless number of the lower races will have been eliminated by the higher civilized races. Um, and as I said, Darwin was a racist and an armchair eugenicist. He didn't publicly advocate it, but he clearly supported it in spirit. His, but I think that's just because it was too new, to be honest. Um, it was his half-cousin, half Francis Galton, who formally founded eugenics, but it was inherent in Darwinism and Darwin himself. And uh, I, I've, I've called out the Natural History Museum of London. Um, I have about 2,000 followers. They have uh, 2 million followers, probably why they haven't responded to me. But I've said, uh, you, you have a statue of Darwin front and center in your museum. In fact, you made it more central in 2009, replacing Richard Owens, who literally founded the museum. Richard Owens was a, basically a critic and a rival of Darwin's. Um, who talked about uh, that there are inherent forms which you can't explain through pure adaptation. Um, but they took out Richard Owen's uh, uh, statues and they, they put in, or, or they moved it and they made Darwin front and centre. They said, do you care to comment on these statements of Darwin? Will the Natural History Museum publicly condemn them or stay silent? And finally, I've said, and before anyone says such views were inevitable for a Victorian, please note that Alfred Russell Wallace, who co-founded the theory of evolution with Darwin, completely disavowed such racism and eugenics by the end of his life. He was a social campaign extraordinaire. And this is the ever brilliant alfred russell wallace so this wasn't an inevitable he also in his time it's a true story he actually also made a really good santa <laughs> the original chris kringle <laughs> um so i mean uh, what what's your what, what do you think about that did you did, did you know about these quotes before um i didn't know about the quotes so i was really surprised when i saw those on your twitter feed um i was like like wow this is something we never hear about yeah but actually it makes perfect sense hmm. so i mean this is a man who came up or didn't come up with but at least formulated best the um the idea of you know uh, com competition within a species uh with mutation and natural selection resulting in um, changes to that species and further evolution. So, you know, he, and he regarded humanity as being um, one among the animals. Yeah. And so it's only natural and a natural consequence of that belief that you would think about how is humanity going to progress further? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's inevitable that that would happen through some form of warfare or conflict. Mm. I mean, it's called survival of the fittest. Yeah. Um, well, 
yeah i can i can i can see your point there and and i think it's you know for me it's not um he didn't obviously darwinism perpetuated that racism but i think there was, there was obviously racism very much inherent in the victorian civilization in the victorian era um as it is to a point to a point today as well but it was particularly prevalent then because then you're in the the height of the british empire with its colonialism and they had to justify their often very horrific crimes to people around the globe um so it kind of it's interesting how it fed into the science of the time and then it also became a perpetuating factor of racism and we know about how um you know not how uh, how darwinism became social darwinism through uh, galton and then uh, how that eventually fed into philosophies that led into um essentially nazism and how the Nazis really championed eugenics um, and made that their whole, you know, raison d'etre. You know, that was their whole thing was to to purify the gene pool and to make it um, uh, to, to to clean it for the Aryan race. Um, so it's a very it's a very yeah, I mean, horrendous Hadamar, legacy of that yeah. of that idea. Yeah, the Hadamard Institute is a great example of that. Um, I can't remember how many thousands. I think it was ten thousand uh, disabled people were. Um, put to death in the Hadamard Institute. So basically, yeah. you would have um, it was an institute in you know um, I can't remember the exact where it is located now, but it was in the in the region of Europe, um, and it was operated effectively by Nazi Imported doctors who would then um, look at people who are disabled and things and make a judgment as to whether they uh, basically should continue to live. And the great irony of this actually is what we've learned about molecular genetics since then, which is that when you actually, the the irony, other than that it being absolutely a horrific thing to do and totally evil, yeah. it's actually self-defeating from a genetic perspective. Because mm. when you actually limit the gene pool, um, what do you get? You get the recurrence of recessive traits, which result in significant disease and effectively the wiping out of your own population. So by getting rid of people who they thought were so-called inferior yeah um they were actually restricting their genetic pool and making it weaker um and more prone to disease and more prone to genetic issues long term mm. and the whole thing is premised on the idea that uh species are not fixed and that there's not an essential there's not no essentialism to within a species that everything is just a big a big blur of of animals going from one species to the other which led to people saying well you know there are certain peoples i.e black people who are you know something between you know god forbid the um you know primates and humans which was essentially what he's what he's uh, the idea that he's advocating here and uh, we have a um a quite harrowing clip from uh, a documentary from the discovery institute called uh, human zoos um so we'll just play this now Samuel Werner returned from Africa to New York City on July the 30th, 1906, arriving on the SS Armenian from Liverpool. He was accompanied by two chimpanzees, a snake, a parrot, and 50 boxes of materials from Africa that he hoped to sell to museums. He was also joined by Ota Benga. Werner quickly departed New York, leaving Benga at the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. Established in 1869, the museum was already becoming one of the premier scientific institutions in the world. Otabenga was largely left free to wander the museum's exhibit halls. When Samuel Werner eventually returned to New York, he was fighting off creditors, and the museum wanted him to find new lodgings for Otabenga. So Werner worked out an agreement to move Otabenga to the New York Zoological Park, otherwise known as the Bronx Zoo. Spread over more than 260 acres, 
The Bronx Zoo had been envisioned by its founders as the largest zoo in the world and the grandest zoological establishment on Earth. The zoo was directed by William Temple Hornaday. A noted zoologist, Hornaday formerly worked at the Smithsonian and he had already founded the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Overseeing Hornaday was an executive committee chaired by Henry Fairfield Osborne, a distinguished professor at Columbia University. Hornaday and Osborne had dreams of exhibiting more than just animals at their new zoo. Both wanted to install Native Americans on zoo grounds, with Osborne promising that one day the Indian and his teepee would take their place next to the zoological park's buffalo. Now they had their chance to put their first human on display. Hornaday quickly agreed to purchase one of Werner's chimpanzees and to house both the chimp and Otterbenga at the zoo. Hornaday planned to exhibit the pygmy and the chimpanzee together in a cage in the zoo's monkey house. It was presented as science, not as a circus act, because these were men of science who, who were doing this. Otabenga went on display in the monkey house on Saturday, September the 8th, 1906. The next day, a sign was placed on the cage explaining the new exhibit. The African Pygmy, Ota Binga, age 23 years, height 4 feet 11 inches, weight 103 pounds, brought from the Kasai River, Congo Free State, exhibited each afternoon during September. Thousands of New Yorkers came to stare and laugh and debate the meaning of the display. Is it a man? Some of them wondered. Newspaper coverage brought even more people and in just a few weeks, the zoo drew nearly a quarter million visitors. But the notoriety also brought controversy. New York's... So we'll stop it there, but I mean, that's a really, really, really horrific and saddening thing to see. Um, <coughs> It, you really, it just leaves you kind of aghast that, um, and worried that, you know, scientists, scientists who are, who are claimed to be, you know, the great impartial spectators of, of the universe and don't bring into account any of their, um, their pre-existing biases, um, can, can say that this is a, this is objective truth and objective fact. Um, you know, it's, does that, for for you, does that also, does that also bring to bear the, the, the need to not simply trust in what people call science or scientists? No, I think we have to, I think we have to, um, the way I see it is a bit like a government, you know, you have often governments have a constitution and then they have laws that are built on top of those constitutions. And I think that every human being has to be rooted firmly in the constitution of life, which is um, ultimately must come from a divine source, hmm. which is what religion seeks to provide. Now, the commentaries on the law um, hmm. that whether it's scientists or religious clergy provide, they should be examined in light of that constitution, that fundament those fundamental principles. And if they're found to be at odds with them, then they are to be discarded. Um, and the fundamental message of um, of the concept of the one God, which underpins basically the divine origin of every religion, hmm. um, is that humanity are also one. And this is finds its greatest manifestation in Islam in particular, because it's the only religion that actually truly addresses uh, all mankind. So, you know, Judaism came for the children of Israel. Jesus, Jesus said, you know, I've not come except unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, um, you know, which is a negative absolute statement. Okay, hmm. so nobody can gainsay and say, oh, well, no, actually, there's also another group. He said, I've not come except 
or but for the children, for the lost sheep of the children of House of Israel. Um, the Hindu religion came for the people of the in the Indus Valley. Is why they're called the Hindus. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, so Islam is really the only religion that, from the very outset, said um, that this is a religion, a teaching for all mankind. Yeah. And so it comes through most strongly in Islam the concept of the unity of of, of humanity. Um, and if you have that in the back of your mind, you have these principles in the back of your mind, when you're confronted then with scientists telling you that actually this group of human beings is actually more primitive and they're actually a, um, a stepping stone on the evolutionary path from monkeys to us, which is what they were saying. Yeah. Um, then you know immediately that that's false. Hmm. Um, and so, and, and you immediately call to mind the words of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, in his last sermon, which was, um, you know, an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab and a non-Arab has no superiority over an Arab. Uh, white ha a white person has no superiority over a black person and a black person has no superiority over a white person except by um, piety, right. and good piety and good action, righteous actions. So, you know, you immediately call to mind that and that's what I mean by the constitution. It's the constitution of life yeah. against which you can measure these commentaries that other people give. But, um, and that's really what religious belief provides, I think. Yeah, I mean, but that's also an issue because um, <clears throat> when when you have scientists who don't buy into that belief system, who don't buy into a religious belief system, what they the belief system they buy into is um, purely their own theories based on their observations, however flawed they may be and however flawed their theories may be. And uh, then they seek to take, I guess, a, a form of morality from that, which is exactly what you had with eugenics. You had uh, Darwinism, which... I mean, we've we've done several videos on why it's pretty much false, except for the most trivial changes um, in with, within species tends to be. Um, so they had they had uh, you know a, a bit of a, a false theory there, and then they extrapolated too much and and put in their own kind of racist ideas into it, and then they ended up taking uh, taking their sense of what they should do from that, from you know trying to bolster um, nature. You know, trying to augment the natural processes and, and and speed them up, so those natural processes became their god. So it actually becomes a form of idolatry, uh, in a sense as well, um, which I guess emphasises why you know, we all worship something. We all actually take something as our highest ideal. Um, what will you take as your highest ideal? Will you take it as the? Will you take the one God, the manifestation of all that is good, and you know the God who's given us so much guidance in religious scripture, or will you take your own? transient ideas based on uh, on this and that observation and influenced by uh, whatever corrupt trends that may be in your society and you know i think i think actually the latter is very much done in the modern world um especially you know with nazism and, and eugenics and the whole you know and psychiatry was in it as well and you know that all these different you know so-called respectable professions um were, were very much part of this um and it kind of it kind of worries you as to whether that could happen again i think it is happening again Hmm. Um, I think it definitely is happening again, for sure. Um, and it's happening in multiple different spheres of life, which we can go into in later conversations. Let's uh, let's move on from uh, from me doing my best to get Darwin out of the syllabuses, um, and uh, let's go on to um, talking a little bit about what is the uh, what is the answer to, or if there is an answer, what is the solution to a lot of the troubles that we see today, and obviously in the context of um, police brutality in the US in the context of um, what many people say is systematic uh, discrimination against um, uh, black people in America and in, quite possibly in other parts of the world as well in, in other parts of the western world um, 
can I ask you what's your what's your reading on uh, on the movement and how to um, fulfil the spirit of their aims? Well, I, my answer is only what you told me. Frankly, you know, I got this answer from you. Um, I think it was very valid. I think you put it better than I would um, regarding the fact that um, these are all superficial changes. A lot of the things that the Black Lives Matter movement is moving towards uh, is is positive in some respects, hmm. um, in many respects, one could say. Um, but these really are superficial changes. And you give it a few years and a lot of these issues will, um, they may have won some battles, they may have lost others. But hmm. the fundamental point is that tearing down statues and changing um, the skin color on certain paintings is not going to change anything. Yeah. Uh, long term. What actually, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of a guy called Jimmy Dore, a mm. political commentator, commentator in the United States. And he always says, and he says it very, very, very truthfully. He said, America just got out of a presidency, an eight year presidency of a black man with a middle Muslim name that was Muslim, a middle Muslim name, Barack Hussein Obama, mm. right? And Black Lives Matter didn't start in Trump's time. It started in his time. Mm. That's when Black Lives Matter started. Mm. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that superficial changes like what's the skin color of my president, mm. that's not going to change the underlying reality for millions of black Americans. It's not going to change the underlying reality of the way our economic structures um, run on an international scale to disadvantage poorer nations, especially those in Africa, yeah. with respect to the plundering of their resources. Okay, that is going to need a systematic and systemic change relating to the way fundamentally power and money is distributed in the world. And that ultimately comes down to an economic question. It doesn't come down to pulling down statues, doesn't come down to changing the color on people's skin, on, on paintings. It doesn't even come down to representation. You had a black Muslim, you had a, bl <laughs> nearly did that. You had a black president. <laughs> You're a Bertha. <clears throat> no, I'm not a Bertha. <laughs> um, you know, you had a black president of America um, who had a middle Muslim name. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know. I think I think representation. Got, they got they got the biggest representation and the biggest superficial change they could possibly ask for, and it didn't fundamentally change anything. Well, I think that's because um, who represents who is important. I think representation is important. It's part of the solution because inevitably such representatives will be better motivated to um, to do things for the communities from which they hail than others will be, just naturally because it's more of your living and breathing life. Um, but representation without um, without people actually really wanting to change things and being in politics for for the for the right reasons isn't really going to do much. And yeah, you need to have your eye on those systemic changes. Um, but I, I my my I guess part of my issue with the way the current discourse is is that it's very much about cultural um, change and cultural revolution and um, let's be less racist, which is which is very positive and i think especially in america that's still a more of an issue than it perhaps is in other parts of the western world not to say that cultural racism racism doesn't exist in other parts of the western world uh, but i think in america it's potentially more pronounced because they have a much more recent history of slavery on their soil than jim crow laws you know literally two generations ago um the civil rights um uh, yeah. movement was 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 actually quite recent you know 50 60 years ago 50 years ago one or two generations ago so they've had a they've had a very recent history of a lot of like real like outright racism um and then legislation changed and you they got rid of that discrimination within legislation and also it has to be said cultural attitudes have also massively changed 
you know, it's not like um, there's been no progress in in racism for the everyday person in America. Now, it may change regionally, it may change uh, according to other things, but obviously there are improvements. But I think the, the, the trick which many are missing is the way that racism becomes integrated into uh, the class system. Because if you have um, generations where black people are deprived of economic liberty, and um, then they have generational poverty, they essentially become massively overrepresented in, um, in the lower socioeconomic classes. And you can say this for other minorities as well, but I think in, in the American experience, especially black people. Um, so, and that, and that is what's happened. You know, um, The wealth which was created amongst black communities ca came at a much uh, later period than the wealth that was created in the post-World War II boom. Uh, at a time where, you know, 30 years later, let's say, home ownership was less, your money went much less um, further, and compounded with that, you also had legislation like uh, like uh, the drug laws that the documentary 13th um, goes into uh, in, in some really interesting detail. Um, so you do have legislation uh, feeding into it. Um, but basically, you know, racism becomes ingrained in classism. And at that point, you can have all the cultural change that you want, and you're not really going to be addressing the issue. Because let's say, let's say you actually have zero racism. Let's say you can, you can wave a magic wand and there's no racism that comes from anyone in America. Okay, racism goes. Now, A, that would be a significant improvement. You'd have a lot less police brutality and other issues would, would, would improve. I'm not saying that wouldn't have an effect. But is that really going to make um, black communities or people or black people in whatever communities they're in uh, better off necessarily uh, on, on, a, on a wider scale in terms of are they going to be, be economically uplifted? Are they going to be able to provide for their families? Are they going to have more health care? Are they going to be able to uh, provide more education? And all the different <coughs> health and lifestyle indicators that go along with improved wealth. No. It's not going to change that. What you need to do is actually improve things on a socioeconomic levels as wider policies to lift up all the people who are in the lowest socioeconomic classes and uh, give them their economic liberty. But that's, um, that's a lot harder. It requires a deeper analysis and it requires a lot more political change and political willpower. So from my mind, at least, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of politicians jumping onto the bandwagon of Black Lives Matters, um, probably largely in good faith, and uh, and they're to be commended for that. And we have a lot of corporations jumping onto that. But, you know, there was a, I, I found a really funny example, which is in Netflix. I was on Netflix the other day, and now they have a Black Lives Matter, um, uh, you know, compilation. And they've got all this stuff front and center. Well, it's very easy for them to do that, you know. And, and I'm sure at least the staff who are doing that, they're doing it out of, of probably a place of, of goodwill. But they didn't pay any tax, basically. You know, in, in the UK especially, it came out in recent reports, they, like every corporation of their size, siphons off all their tax and says, you know, we're actually in Amsterdam. <laughs> um, right? And it's like, well, do you not think that uh, paying, you know, the many millions which you make or billions that you potentially make worldwide um, into the tax man would do something to help more deprived communities? Well, yeah, but, you know, the law is like that. And fair enough. The law is like that. You can actually do that perfectly legally. So I think it's very easy for corporations to, to have jumped onto this because it's easy. doesn't require them really to change anything financially. doesn't really affect their shareholders. Um, and, uh, and actually not, create, not, not actually advocating for any systemic change. They haven't, you know, Nike, Netflix, Google, Apple, they haven't got together and said, you know what we need? We need better tax laws to stop us offshoring all of our revenues, all of our profits, um, and so that we can really, you know, give money to the tax man and, and we need the tax man to be really accountable and to spend this on, on more deprived communities. That's not happening. Um, and I think there's a reason for that because it affects people's bottom lines. So 
uh, I guess my my overall point is that cultural change is good and positive, but it's going to be insufficient for the change that you actually want to see. The change yeah, that you really good, need is socioeconomic. Yeah, well, actually, you do need socioeconomic change, but what's really underpinning the desire to keep your profits afloat at the expense of other people? What's, I mean, well, that's greed and selfishness and, you know, ultimately moral qualities. Moral qualities which are underpinned by your spiritual beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so if you have a belief that you will be held accountable for every penny that you spend in your life, mm. and you genuinely believe that, mm. and how you've spent that money, and you'll be questioned as to how you've spent that money, mm. then you're going to be thinking twice before you offshore your money and pay absolutely zero income tax. There's a whole chapter of the Quran, actually, one towards the end, which uh, talks about avoiding tax and the consequences of that for individuals. Mm. Um, so, you know, avoiding the payment of legal arms. So the, you know, that's what actually underpins a socioeconomic problem is actually a spiritual and a moral crisis. I mean, we were discussing moral morality earlier with respect to the racism issue. Yeah. Um, specifically uh, relating it to Darwinism. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, we have to remember is that race, um, morality is actually just a system of priorities. And your system priorities is defined by what you consider to be your purpose in life. So if you're a mother and you have um, a child and you love that child more than anything else in the world, then your priority is always going to be the safety and the security of that child over and above everything else. And it necessarily has to be so if you genuinely love that child more than anything else in existence. Mm. Right, because that's the definition. If you love something more than anything else, you're going to be able to be willing to protect it at the expense yes. of anything else. Yeah. Right. So the consequence of that is is that when that mother is put in a situation whereby she um, the interests of her child run contrary to the interests of what is right, of telling the truth, of not harming or letting harm come to another child. Okay. Mm. Then necessarily, necessarily, not incidentally, necessarily. Yeah. She will, in actual fact, um, go on to uh, let, uh, do that evil action. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a natural consequence of her priorities in life. That's a natural consequence of what's her purpose in life, which in itself is a natural consequence of what she loves most in life. So in actual fact, morality is, people have a veneer of morality because they live in a society whereby for most people, especially in the UK and, and sometimes in the US, but less so in the US with income inequality, people are able to actually meet ends and ends meet. They are able to feed their families. They are able to um, operate within the social circle um, and meet their needs to a sufficient degree that they will not go out and break social norms and violate other people's rights in a brazen and blatant fashion. But when that no longer happens and when the political and the economic um, uh, state becomes so dire that people can no longer meet the needs of those things for which they had obeyed the social contract. Yeah. Okay. Then it will necessarily lead to revolution, um, especially and very rapidly in a society which is a religious, in which the individuals do not believe that they will be held accountable for their rebellious uh, behavior towards other human beings or towards the, towards the government. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's just the natural consequence of it. And so, you know, I would not be surprised if we're heading towards a revolution in America in particular, because with the coronavirus situation, um, with the cultural issue crisis of Black Lives Matter, and in addition with the um, total failure 
of policymakers to actually provide money to ordinary hardworking Americans mm. um, in terms of making ends meet and instead of giving $5 trillion to corporations, you know, no, you're no, going, come on, you're it'll, going it'll to trickle have... down. It'll trickle down. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to necessarily have a situation whereby people, most of, many of whom are not, do not believe in God, many of whom, even if they do believe in God, don't necessarily believe they'll be held accountable for their actions, yeah. can no longer meet ends meet. Ends meet. Um, and so that is when you get the clash of, you know, uh, it, when morality as a concept breaks down. Um, um, if, if you don't believe in God and if you don't have the belief in accountability. Well, what about atheists and humanists who say that what you need to do is minimize suffering and maximize well-being? I mean, isn't that enough? There is something I wanted to come on to here, which is uh, an article on our website, rationalreligion.co.uk, where we gave a few um, examples of why the kind of atheistic attempts at morality really fail. Because this is the common, um, this is the common refrain, you know, maximize uh, well-being and, and reduce suffering, and that's all you really need. But it doesn't work. So um, I just want to want to read out one or two paragraphs from this. Is that all right with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think we could probably summarize the points for the people rather than reading it for them. Um, yeah, but I'm trying to remember them, so I want to read them. <laughs> so, so I mean, the first point is basically, um, you know, the issue of utilitarianism, where uh, if increasing well-being becomes a numbers game, um, then is torture, you know, is, is torture allowed? Because you could potentially torture one person and get uh, information that could save 10 people. Right, so then, yeah, well, that's the that's the that's the classic thing Sam Harris agrees with, isn't it? Because it does make logical sense. <laughs> At least he's consistent. Um, but then let's take a, let's take another example of uh, you know what about what about where you people say um, you should treat people in the same way that, they, that that you want them to treat you, you know, for instance, or you should maximize well-being and minimize suffering. Let's see if that works with these other examples. So take an accountant of the Rothschilds, the richest family on earth. Imagine he is one day tempted to steal some money from his luxury-loving employers, just £1,000. He has the skills to easily get away with it. He will certainly benefit from the extra money, and he knows that his billionaire employers will never miss it. He looks at religious morality that tells him that such theft is unlawful and that he will be held responsible. But our accountant is much too enlightened for this religion nonsense. To humanism he goes. And what does he find? Maximize well-being, minimize suffering. Well, he thinks no one will suffer and his well-being will increase. And so it would seem that theft is not only immoral, but positively a good thing. Then let's turn to a rather more sordid affair, literally. A married woman and her tempting lover. She finds herself in a dissatisfied marriage, but feels that it could all pick up if she, let, if she lets herself indulge just once with her newfound friend. She waits until her husband is out of the country, so he can't find out. But then her conscience prickles. This is adultery. That can't be right, can it? And she pauses for thought. Humanism. As she pauses for thought, humanism, wonderful humanism, by which I mean secular humanism, comes to her aid. She remembers that delightful Stephen Fry video which said we should do what makes us happy. Maximise well-being and reduce suffering. Needless to say, she went and maximised her well-being. So, <laughs> I love that last line. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, think they, I think they get the idea. Yeah. Well, I could they just get, get should idea. I do 20 more minutes of examples? No? Okay, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. Um, we'll put the link for that, um, that, that article in the description below on YouTube. But I, I think it, it goes to show that actually without a um, real moral guide and without real moral accountability, there is no morality. Um, you're essentially left to do whatever you want uh, without guidance, um, which, uh, which, as you said, is, is what underpins the lack of responsible actions on the part of many leaders through generations in their treatment of minority communities. 
Uh, and so for that, you know, that is really the going to be the ultimate solution. Um, yes, we need to work on on all manner of other things, but you actually need humans to make better moral choices. And in order to do that, you really need to be them, for them to be motivated by beliefs. Um, so it's, poss it's certainly possible to make progress uh, just basing on the on the general moral conscious of humanity, but uh, but it all becomes harder, and you're really fighting a much more of an uphill battle. Is that is that a fair assessment? Would you say? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, people never take it back. They say socioeconomic change, but what underpins socioeconomic change is human decisions, which are motivated by beliefs as to what will benefit them, what will harm them. Yeah. Um, and that's where religious belief is indispensable. And the idea that you can get rid of religious belief when it served humanity, you know, even if you're an atheist, you believe you have you're confronted with the fact that human beings actually have developed religious belief, even if you believe they developed it themselves. Mm. You know, and a lot of a lot of atheists then flee to the the idea that it must be beneficial in some way for society to progress. Mm. Well, take that a bit further. Why is it beneficial? Um, and so, you know, this is one example whereby I think its its benefit is very clear. It's the concept of accountability that it gives to a human being. I mean, in terms of the kind of systematic racism that's happened in the United States. One big example, which has gained kind of fame in recent years, not re fame, but people know about it a bit better. Infamy. It, infamy, in a way, is the concept of redlining. Mm. Um, so I don't know whether you've come across the idea of redlining. Yeah. So it was coined by um, John Knight, who was a sociologist in the 1960s, I think. Mm. Um, basically, black people were ghettoized, mm. um, especially black people in America were ghettoized. And uh, banks and institutions, especially banks who would loan money to people for their mortgages, they would basically put red lines around certain neighborhoods and say, anybody from this postcode or zip code, as they say in the United States, he's not going to get a loan. Mm. And they'd find it much harder to get a loan. Um, in addition, you know, you look at the school system in the United States, it's built on the idea that the funding comes from the local, what we would call in the UK council tax. Mm. So your local neighborhood tax, yeah. which in itself would be based on the value of the houses in that area. So if you have a poor neighborhood with a poor school, then that poor school gets hardly any funding because it's in a poor neighborhood. I mean, it's actually backwards. Yeah. It's actually backwards. It should actually, if there's any kind of equity behind it, it would actually be that the funding goes most to the poor areas and least to the wealthy areas. Yeah. But it was literally consciously constructed so that funding would um, go to um, the richer areas rather than poorer areas. Um, so that's an example of a kind of systematic change which has generational consequences. Anytime you mess with the education of the next generation, you're not looking at a change that's, that's fixed by you know, electing a black president with a Muslim middle name. Yeah. You're looking at a change that needs a generational um, systemic solution to it. And usually, especially in this current context, uh, very much economic policies. And that's a really good example of actually how race turns into class and how, you know, um, and, and, and in a sense, actually, in a sense, one can say that actually it was always classism to begin with, because actually the racism was used to justify the classism. Because why were, why were the, why were black people, why was the whole transatlantic slave, slave trade even, even created in the first place? Oh, so they can create an empire of cotton, make huge profits. And, you know, and they would, they rapidly grew as a country, America. And, you know, really all the, all the empires who use this kind of slave labor. I mean, there's literally nothing cheaper. Um, it's, it's basically, I think at its root in a sense, basically socioeconomic because, you know, it's the, it's the easiest thing in the world. Uh, economically to just have slave labor and take off all the profits and then there comes all the uh, all the racism to justify that and actually that's borne out historically because um very early in the slave trade 
um, you know, many white poor people were were enslaved as well. Um, and you had you had actually, in some respects, multiracial slaves. But then racism came through more because it was used to justify the slavery of the blacks, and then that started to be changed. Um, so I mean, poor white, there are plenty of poor white people who are still, um, you know, certainly economically left out. Uh, but uh, I think I think people don't quite appreciate that originally. It's it's, in a, it basically classes them from the very root. Racism comes into it and then changes the nature of those classes to racialize the classes. And now we've got the opposite period thing happening, where then you have the races, um, the racism in a cultural sense starting to fade, but the the class uh, inequalities uh, persisting through the generations. Um, and, it, and in fact, because you have the extreme income, not in just income, but also extreme income. Um, economic inequality mm. within societies, um, societies that previously would parasitize on people of darker skinned um, by going and exploiting them and in enacting slave labor. Yeah. You now have, um, in a way, a supranational uh, class of individuals who have no kind of allegiance to a particular country. They have allegiance to where their money is going to make the greatest profit. Mm. And whether they enslave the poor white guy in Kansas, mm. known as Clark Kent, who then grows up and he becomes strong and realizes he's, he's an alien from a... Anyway, that, sorry, that's a different story. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I got so or, or the poor there. New York photographer, you know, Peter yeah. Parker. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, my point is that whether that, su whether that supranational class of Jeff Bezos of the world um, you know, uh, use um, the pseudo-slave labor uh, and pittance that they give to the, the white guy in America or mm. they employ the Indian uh, in London or whatever. It doesn't make a difference. They don't care about race anymore. Yeah. Um, and they don't have an allegiance to any particular race either. Yeah. Um, they have an allegiance to a particular power structure. So what we then have is that um, the idea of subjugating peoples uh, basically comes out from a materialist worldview. Uh, it can't come out really from an authentically religious worldview because you're responsible for your actions and you recognize that you'll, you'll be responsible for how you treat other people and that wealth isn't the end point of your life. So yeah, I mean, I hate from, it. Yeah, yeah. It I mean, I hate it when people like start blaming religion for these things, when religion has explicitly, um, you know, an explicit uh, uh, teachings against these mm. positions and if people disregard those teachings and then go ahead and do it claiming it's in the name of religion well you know are you so thick so as not be able to see that yeah <laughs> yeah because people can do what they want fundamentally but it's a question of whether that's justified within the religion or actively taught against um but i was just trying i was just trying to sum this 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 up with the saying we're saying that a materialist worldview um you know very often or essentially inevitably leads to this and it doesn't put any checks on the greed of people they then subjugate people in various ways in order to uh, augment their wealth and that subjugation you know creates socioeconomic classes and then you can have philosophies be they um, cultural or in some respects religious coming to justify that subjugation and then it can take take particular forms such as you know with uh, with racism in the transatlantic slave trade and racism which persisted throughout that um is that is that basically basically what what we're saying here we are but i mean i'm conscious of the fact that people are going to point out that most of the people who committed the uh, atrocities against uh, west africans were christians mm. and ostensibly very religious people yeah. um but we kind of addressed that in our previous uh, video, and I don't think it's pertinent necessarily to raise it mm. in every video. But basically, we, you know, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, um, you know, this is something we spoke about in the previous episode as well. 
Uh, but I think Christianity amongst religions or modern Christianity is a bit of a special case because Paul, who uh, we take as really the founder of Christian doctrines, um, said that the law is a curse. They literally said that the law is a curse. So the moral law of Moses, which tells you what to do and what not to do, is a curse and that Jesus took this curse unto himself through his atoning death. He basically did away with the, uh, the whole idea of following the law. And modern Christianity says that you should uh, just believe in, or Christianity from Paul says that you should believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus' atoning death, then essentially all your sins are forgiven. And it takes away the whole incentive of, um, of being you know, accountable for your actions and also takes away you know, the whole law which you're supposed to be following. Now, it's also true that you know, many Muslims and Jews and other people from other religions which have a moral law also commit crimes. Um, you know, great crimes, including slavery. And what can you say apart from, especially in the Islamic case, but I imagine in the original, in the original teachings of other religions as well, they're not following their religion properly. So we're not saying that, you know, religion, um, that religious people can't be bad and that they can't do criminal things. It's just that when they do it, they don't find, um, you know, that's not supported, I think, especially in the Islamic case. Uh, by their actual religious teachings and in most cases their religious teachings completely go against that and in every case the original teachings of their prophets go against the things which they're doing so you have to a have a religion which says that you're accountable and gives you a moral law and b you have to follow it but if you take away you know religion as a whole and you're just left with atheism then you are left with a moral vacuum in which anything can be justified uh, there's a great Belinsky, David Belinsky quote, which is... I was on just the, about to say that. <laughs> why, why don't you say it? You remember it better than I do usually. I mean, he always says... Uh, well, he said in this fantastic... Um, it was in the debate with Hitchens, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, he says that if an old man's hobbling across the road with only a walking stick to aid him and you come along and you kick the walking stick out of his hand, can you really expect him to walk faster? Yeah. So um, the point he's making is that if humanity is barely stumbling along in terms of its moral practice, with the belief that they will be held accountable for their actions. Yeah. Is the removal of um, the belief that they will be held accountable for their actions likely to improve their moral state or make it worse? Yeah, yeah. And the ultimate answer will be to also reform their understanding of religion and uh, to, to return them to a true spiritual connection to God and a real belief in the fact that they will be accountable. Because you can ostensibly be Muslim or a Jew or a Christian while actually not having any kind of real belief in it. So that's another aspect of it. I wanted to discuss uh, one or two more things before we uh, we close up here. And we've been discussing a lot about how class and race, how race can turn into class, or rather how class turns into race and then often turns back into, into class. Um, and it, this comes out of a lot of tropes, a lot of sort of anti-black and anti-minority tropes, which is that basically it's they're doing it for themselves. You know, they're making their own lives worse. You know, there's they're they're more criminal or they're more this and they're more that. And in the British experience, that comes out a lot in uh, in knife crime in London. And uh, you know, in recent years, a lot of that has been attributed to um, black people and to black youths. Um, so the idea, essentially underlying it, is that as Akala says, it's their blackness which is a sufficient explanation. Um, so let's uh, let's go to Akala, and uh, he's he's a rapper and a British intellectual, and uh, and see what he says about this. I think it's really worth listening to. Book, um, how you analyse what's going on right now? Yeah, well, so a lot of the research I did when you look at scholars like Andrew Davies, who writes books uh, about the history of gang crime in Glasgow and Manchester, or Robert McKilvey, who's got volumes of stuff about the history of gang crime in Liverpool. What you see firstly is that this is not a new problem. Every generation pretends gang crime is a new problem. So when you look at the press reports they cite in their scholarship, it's this same sort of sense of moral panic, this unprecedented thing. When actually we've had violent uh, teenage youth gangs 
for 150, 200 years, maybe even longer. And the social indicators of that violence have remained identical for almost 200 years, as have the sort of facile explanations of violence. And those social, social indicators are? Uh, poverty, domestic abuse, lack of education, so expulsion from school. So for example, almost half the people in prison today in Britain were expelled from school as children, versus just 1% in the population as a whole. Among young people, about half the young people in young offenders institutes were at some point in care growing up, versus about 1% in the population as a whole. So social indicators have remained identical. Uh, explanations or what we call mor moral panics, this sort of idea <laughs> that just having enough police or just having tougher sentences will work. A good friend of mine, Dr. Baz Dreisinger, did a PhD looking at uh, prisons all around the world and she didn't find any correlation anywhere between tougher sentences and reduction of crime. So those people who analyse it as a race problem, yeah. these are black gangs, these are Asian well, gangs, these are... This is, this is fascinating. I mean, let's just look at the maths. There are 1.2 million black people in London. In a bad year, 50 of them will kill someone. That's less than 0.004% of the black population. Therefore, anyone that thinks that blackness is a sufficient common, common denominator for violent crime clearly doesn't even understand what a common denominator is. Just to contrast, in a bad year in Glasgow, say 2005, there were 40 murders. There were only 600,000 people in Glasgow. So that year, a Glaswegian as a whole was twice as likely to be killed as a black Londoner. Whereas the commonalities, when you actually look at the demography of violent crime, the commonalities remain the same in Glasgow, Liverpool, Belfast, Naples, or London. Racial explanations are sort of a sort of way out for, for the powers that be, a way out for the wider society. Um, and it's revealing that what happens in London is black on black crime, even when the person committing it is like me, has one white parent, one black parent. Okay, what happens well, in Glasgow, race is not important, or Liverpool, race is not so important. So let's look at the way the government is, is uh, responding to this. Money, yeah. on the one hand, yeah. into very... So, I mean, I mean, what do you make of what he's saying there? Um, I think he's 100% correct. Um, basically, race is used as a justification or as a proxy or as an easy determinant, you could say, hmm. of uh, what is actually the problem, which is underlying socioeconomic issues. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of the socioeconomic issues that people look at um, are sometimes the wrong, the wrong indicators as well. Um, so people will look at things like... Um, you know, the people, people, they're not necessarily the wrong things, but they're not always the total picture. Um, and I think that sometimes people don't actually look at the intergenerational consequences of poverty in previous generations and how, as with the redlining example we talked about earlier, hmm. it leads to um, social dysfunction in later generations. Yeah. So you're saying kind of the social makeup of the, of, of communities and families can be very much affected by that. And that's that's happened hugely in uh, in America as well with um, with uh, the excessive, um, completely disproportionate and justifiable imprisonment of a lot of black males in particular, and the breakups of those families and the and the drug laws that were specifically targeted to that. And by the way, the slavery basically in those prisons, which they use. Um, and Agala, I think I think in a separate place, I think maybe he covers this in his book. He's got an excellent book called Natives, um, where he talks about this trope of single parent families. And how actually this is very much socioeconomically driven wherever you are in the world. And it's to do with kind of legislation. It's to do with, you know, economic migration and these kinds of things. Um, so, so I guess this is coming back to the fact that we need to actually address the real issues here. Yes, absolutely deal with the racism. And different societies are in different, you know, phases of yeah. dealing with these things. Some have much more of an explicit, obvious race issue. And some have much more of, a, of an issue where it's turned to class. I guess the answer will be to deal with both, but to proportionally address... Um, the issues according to where the the real root of it lies. Um, 
which I think... But really, I would much rather, actually, that um, the Black Lives Matter movement or any movement that kind of, you know, is in response to, for example, the killing of George Floyd mm. were to focus exclusively on the question of justice. Mm. Um, so justice for black people and people of color and minority communities in a systematic way. And yeah. this is why the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Musrur Ahmed, the Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you know, he's advised his community to focus when you're talking about race, yeah. to focus on the question of justice. Mm. Because that is at the root of it. It's not about, you know, if you're going to choose, are you going to choose between talking about, um, you know, more black kids in cartoons yeah. versus uh, actual economic policies that would actually kind of reverse the economic injustices that um, black people have historically faced, for example, due to redlining. Okay. If you were to choose between one or the other, one being a superficial thing, which everybody sees and is very apparent, but actually does really nothing in terms of the underlying malaise, mm. it does something with respect to even a superficial thing has a superficial effect, mm. but it doesn't actually penetrate to the underlying issues that are faced by black people in those communities. If you had to choose between doing that or doing only an economic policy and having continue to have, you know, white kids on cartoons, I'd prefer they do the latter. Yeah. And also because, when you're... Because actually the former ultimately naturally evolves out of the latter anyway. Yeah. When you start getting people who are African-American, um, who are have the same socioeconomic indicators of white individuals... Well, they're going to make their own cartoons because they're now in positions of authority in media companies, et cetera, mm. through a natural organic process to actually do so. Mm. So when you're focusing on justice, you're hitting the root cause of it and you're changing moral attitudes, which will also have a, have a greater overspill effect in the future with if it's, you know, not justice with, with black people, but also other minority communities or whatever issues there may be. You focus on people fulfilling their responsibilities to others, um, then I guess you'll have actually dealt with the real issue. And not have made a um, you know a specific short-lived effect on on one particular minority community or or, or another. Um, I, I yeah, hundred percent. And that's what we in this podcast really aim to do, isn't it? We're trying to basically get to the root causes of issues. We're not here to just talk about the superficial kind of um, trend of the day. Um, we want to get down to the root uh, fundamental problems that yeah. society faces. Um, let's uh, let's finish now on uh, on a, a great uh, a great video from uh, Malcolm X. Okay, so speaking about how uh, beliefs can affect your attitudes and how your belief system can change the way that you treat other people. Uh, Malcolm X is obviously one of the most famous examples of this. Um, he started off his life, or in his early life, he was a he was he was a pretty hardened criminal. So much so, he's called Satan in prison, and he referred to him as, as the, himself as that. And he was the most hardened atheist. Um, he was preached to in prison uh, and he became a Muslim and he quickly became a, a member of the Nation of Islam and was really a, a separatist, uh, someone who believed that the races should be completely separate and there was no chance for real integration in America uh, until he broke from the Nation of Islam and went to Hajj. And when he went to Hajj, he wrote back a famous letter, um, uh, his so-called letter from Mecca. Actually, he sent a few of those to a few different family members. Um, and he explains that this completely changed the way of his thinking. And when he came into counter with, uh, when he came into uh, contact with the most obvious manifestation in a physical way of Islam, uh, you know, while doing the Hajj, it really transformed his views. Um, so this is a fantastic clip where in uh, where the reporters ask him, you know, can you comment on that letter from Mecca? 
and he gives some pretty pretty funny pretty funny answers to begin with um which are a little bit garbled but i think they're quite funny so i think we'll include them yeah what do you want me to comment <laughs> i mean ask me a question about it and i'll try and answer but comment that's a long letter <laughs> he's saying i wrote the letter just read the letter <laughs> what, do, what do you want to say Travel broadens one's scope. Anytime you do any traveling, your scope will be broadened. It doesn't mean you change, you broaden. <laughs> I think they recognize that as a little bit of a dodge. But <laughs> no religion will ever make me forget the condition of our people in this country. No religion will ever make me forget the continued biting of dogs against our people in this country. No religion will make me forget the police clubs that come upside our heads. No God or no religion, no nothing, will make me forget it until it's stopped, until it's finished, until it's eliminated. I want to make that point clear. Now, concerning the letter, in, uh, in Mecca, during the, this religious hajj, it would be an anthropologist's paradise, because never at any time or any place can you find a wider variety of specimens from the human family together at the same time than on this, than during this pilgrimage. Every type of human being imaginable is there. All colors, all sizes, all everything. As I pointed out in the letter, during the religious ritual, you eat actually with your hands all of the time. I was eating from the same plate with people who in America would be considered white, whose hair was blonde, whose eyes were blue, and whose skin was white. Yes. There were black people, brown people, red people, yellow people, and white people. Every specimen of humanity was represented there. But I noticed, one thing I noticed about these, they didn't act white. <laughs> they didn't act like the white people whom I had always known. In studying it, in any Afro-American who's involved in any kind of experience, the yardstick that he uses to measure it is racism. When you find a black man, a so-called Negro from America, any situation he comes in contact with, He's measuring it from the racist point of view because this is his experience. This is his. This is the American experience for a black American, so-called black American, or a black so-called American. <laughs> um, I want to. I want to actually um, just comment on that because uh, in reading his autobiography, there's a part of it which is very striking, which is one of the Nation of Islam's um, one of their doctrines was that the white man is the devil. Like literally, white people are, are devils and they're the spawn of Satan. Um, yeah. and he was in prison and he was told this and he, he talks about how he went in his mind through every white person that he'd ever have contact with and he went back to his father and the people who lynched his father and abused him and then the um, police who separated his family and the social services that took away his mum and she eventually got sectioned wow, into, really? uh, yeah, into a into a mental health institute because they because she got under so much stress. Wow, she he had no choice, down. chance, did he? Yeah, and then and then he went into um, uh, you know, the big city and was was 
and then and then he just he 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 knew that he had no real chance to to do anything in society, so he basically became a, a criminal. And they yeah, they were always his enemies in various different ways. And it shows actually the effect that that kind so of what did he say? What, what did he say? He said, "I went back and I thought about all." He of said, them. "I thought about them." And he was like, "Yeah, well, they must be the devil." Because <laughs> <laughs> his experience was so thorough of racism growing up in the nineteen from the nineteen thirties onwards. Mm. Um, you know, it's unreal how that actually actually that that idea. And he's not like an yeah. idiot; he's an incredibly smart man. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, nobody <laughs> can frankly hold. Very few human beings in human history are able to hold a candle to yeah. Malcolm X when it comes to ideas intelligence and uh, oratory yeah yeah so it, it kind of it's it's stark it's a stark example of how bad that racism was um and obviously parts of it certainly linger on today uh but i thought i'd just uh come in on that let's get back to uh brother malcolm this is a great joke which i just butchered so. he's measuring it from the racist point of view because this is his experience this is his this is the american experience for a black american so-called black american or a black so-called American. <laughs> so I was, I was studying the situation and I was asking myself, well, what is the difference between these people and those whom I just left in America? Something is different. And it was their attitude. It wasn't their color because those were just as white as these. Their eyes were just as blue as these. Their hair was just as blonde as these. Yet they were different. And the difference was not in the color but in the attitude. So I was searching to find an answer as to why, and I thought, thought I did. The fact that they had accepted the oneness of God, as does everyone who's on that pilgrimage, had the chain reaction effect of forcing them also to uh, accept the oneness of the human family. So that by accepting the oneness of God, they regarded all people, all persons, as part of the human family. They didn't uh, uh, judge them by the color of their skin, but the different complexions present only represented the different complexions that go to make up the human family. Not one being any better than the other, or one being any different from the other. And this, this was reflected in their attitude, because they looked upon all of mankind as a brother. They looked upon themselves as being nothing but another brother. They didn't have that air, I am white. White to them didn't mean the same thing that it means in America. When a, when a man in America says he's white, he means something much different from what is meant by that man over there. When this man over here uses the word white, right in the sound of his voice, right in the essence of his being, is something that you and I are able to detect and I think you'll have to bear me witness. Over there I didn't find that. So I said to myself, and I wrote it back, that if Islam, if that philosophy can remove from those people who are supposedly white this uh, ingredient of racism that we have always discovered and felt the results of in this society, if it can remove it from that, perhaps if these people over here with the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the white skin and the bad attitude... <laughs> can study uh, that philosophy and be affected by it in the same manner, perhaps they too can be saved from the disaster that they must inevitably uh, run into if they continue to practice or display the same racist attitude that we see reflected. Now, this is a change in my original attitude 
then let it be. But I'd rather say that travel broadens one's scope. So that's uh, pretty brilliant. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, made the, actually, it actually made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah. Like, it actually made the hairs on my back of my neck stand up. Um, I mean, there are two things that really I, I really like out of that. Uh, three things, actually. I better say them quickly, otherwise I'm going to forget what they are. <laughs> um, there are nine things that really stand out to me. <laughs> so the first thing is that he changed his mind. Yeah. Okay. The first thing is that he changed his mind about white people. Mm. And that is a testament to his own genuine integrity and mm. his own sincerity uh, and commitment to the issues that he was facing and his genuine interest not to, you know, he wasn't there to make a name for himself. He was actually trying to create and discover a solution for the issue and the race problems in America. And this is why I believe God guided him to Islam. Hmm. Um, because in Islam, towards the end of his life, as evidenced by that clip there, he found the true solution. The true solution is in changing people's mentality and their beliefs that underpin their mentality. And yeah. no amount of legislation can change people's fundamental beliefs and mentality that requires social change. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is can, that... Can I, can sorry, I come in on that? In there. Or, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because also, he doesn't talk about in that clip, but in many other places, he talks about how Islam in its totality, and he talks about social teachings and its economic teachings, um, will fix the problem. So he actually talked about how all the different aspects of Islam would also do that. So as well as the, the fundamental changing of attitudes, which is obviously the, the, the basis and the premise of all of it, he did speak, he had a very um, encompassing point of view and, and he was very well attuned to how, uh, how class is part of it and how we need all these different approaches and how Islam caters for all of that. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Look, legislation is 100% part, part of the story. You must have legislation to at least safeguard people's rights because that's yeah. how rape rights are safeguarded. And the civil rights movement is one of the great success stories in the 20th century. There's no doubt about that. But it's an incomplete story hmm. um, because when you change people's beliefs and mentality, the legislation naturally follows. Yeah. Right. But when you change legislation, beliefs and mentality don't naturally follow. And we're in a situation in America where there's a lot of people who you have legislation in place, but their beliefs and their mentality has not been reformed. And so that's the point I was trying to make. There. And that comes out in their prison laws and their, and their crime laws um, and the way that you have just modern slavery in, uh, in their prisons as well. But uh, sorry, so your, your second point? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the second point is that, you know, there's um, some going to actually the root of Islam, which is the practice of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him. There are two examples where the Prophet Muhammad, how he changed people's mentality. How did he take Arabs who thought of themselves as superior to pretty much everybody mm -hmm. um, on account of their more advanced um, uh, language, which is still the case. They've still got the most advanced language in the world. Mm. Um, you know, how did he change their mentality, which was highly tribal, who, you know, they thought that even an Arab from another tribe was less than them, let alone a black Abyssinian, for example. Hmm. Um, and there was Bilal, the um, black Abyssinian who was uh, previously a slave uh, within Muslim society. And when he became a Muslim and was he, he was freed, first of all, by Abu Bakr, he became a Muslim while he was yet a slave. Hmm. And then he was tortured by the Meccan pagans to turn him away from the belief in Islam. And he persisted in his belief that God was one and that Muhammad, peace be on him, was the messenger of God. And when he and uh, Abu Bakr, who became the first caliph of Islam, he bought him and he freed him. 
immediately. Um, so he brought him for the purpose of freeing him. And it's really interesting that Bilal, what did the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, do with Bilal? He did two particular things of noteworthy significance. The first is, is that he made him the caller to the prayer. Hmm. Okay. So when the call to prayer first happened and throughout the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, Bilal, peace be on him, was the call, was the person who would call people to prayer. He was the one who was saying, um, uh, come to prayer, come to prayer, come to success, come to yeah. success. Okay. So that was one way he changed the mentality of the Arabs that they would hear every single day in the tune and in the, um, in the accent of an Abyssinian they would hear Arabic being spoken, saying, come to prayer, come to success. The second really major way in which he demonstrated that was on the day of the fall of Mecca, right? When the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, conquered Mecca um, bloodlessly, without any bloodshed, with 10,000 soldiers. He said, and he made an announcement to be made in Mecca, in which anybody who enters the precincts of the Kaaba, the black square at the center of Mecca, anyone who enters the precincts of the Kaaba, anyone who stays in their homes, or in the home of Abu Sufyan, will be safe. Abu Sufyan was the chief of Mecca at the time. And the third way of being safe, anybody who takes, um, takes, uh, takes refuge under the banner of Bilal. So mm. Bilal was sent into the city with a banner, okay? And he was holding the banner. So anybody who would take refuge under Bilal yeah. would be safe. I mean, that is such an extraordinary symbolic... Um, Act. Talk about representation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Representation does matter. But he used it to change people's mentality in a really big way. And the third thing I just wanted to point out was what, very small point, Malcolm X said at the end of that video. He said that the race issue is going to become a disaster mm. for the United States unless they change their ways. And he was 100% right. Mm. Well, uh, I think uh, I think that's been a great discussion. So thank you uh, for that. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to come in on? No, no, no. What about you? Um, no, I'm 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 good. Thanks. <laughs> I think uh, I think we've covered a lot. So we've talked about in the last episode the geopolitics of the day, and today we've talked a lot about um, cultural issues that that we're facing and how that ties into the economic issues. Um, but we have a lot more to cover in uh, future episodes. So make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell. Uh, give us a like, give us a comment. And uh, also we're on a, a few different podcast uh, platforms that we'll put in the link to the description below. And uh, we'll put all the links that we used as well into the description below. Um, so until next time, thank you very much for tuning into the Rational Religion Show. Tell your friends about us and peace be upon you. Peace be on you. <laughs>